This is episode 91 of the Prepper Website Podcast. Today's articles are Analysis, What Civil War 2.0 Looks Like Four Absolutely Necessary Things Every Prepper Must Realize And 20 Times I've Been Glad I Had an Emergency Fund Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com This podcast is an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website, a daily aggregator of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Hey, I hope everyone had a great weekend. Hope you had some time to go out and do some things that you really wanted to do. Uh, we've got a great podcast today, a lot of great articles, and uh, I'm going to let you know this first one um, there's just a little bit of a story to this one. So Becca Moore of Country Acres Homestead hit me up on Facebook um, maybe about a week ago, two weeks ago, and said, "Hey Todd, here's an article you might be, or you know, something you might want to read. It's it's really interesting." And so I went over to it, and uh, it was a guy named Drew Pooters. I don't know if that's his real name or not, but uh, so he wrote this analysis and. Uh, Apparently, he's done some simulations and things like that about what civil war would look like uh, in in the uh, in the United States. And uh, man, I thought it was fascinating, so I contacted him and I said, "Hey, um, do you have a website where you're posting this?" Because he was just doing this all on Facebook. And uh, he said, and, "And then I said, if not, if you don't have a, a, a website, can I post it for you on a website?" And then, uh, you know, would, do you give me your permission to read it on my podcast? And he was like, yeah, Im- information is free. And so, uh, I mean, one of the things I have a problem with about Facebook is that you can, you can do a lot of work on Facebook and it's not yours. You know, Facebook still belongs to Facebook. And uh, if they want to cut you off, if they don't like your right-wing leading or, you know, uh, whatever it is, that they'll, they, can, they can just shut you down. And some people have been shut down like that. Um, so uh, I, I wanted to put this up on the site. So uh, this has been probably one of the most shared articles that I have ever had on edthatmatters.com. And so uh, it, it's, it's just been crazy. I'm still getting tons of traffic from people um, people sharing this out on Facebook. So it's been it's been really great. I have linked on in the article I have linked to Drew Pooters so you can go and what I would do is uh it, it's not really uh it's not his personal page. I think it's his uh you know, it's just like a, a fan page or whatever, uh, a group. You can just like it. And so that way you can be notified when he puts things out there because uh, I, I thought this was very fascinating and interesting. Very, he's a he's a patriot, so I I think a lot of you would uh, would really like to follow him. So anyway, let's go ahead and start reading this one again. It comes from my website edthatmatters.com. It's not my article again. Uh, it's uh, belongs to Drew Pooters, and so let me go ahead and start reading from the very beginning. This article was reprinted with permission from Drew Pooters. When you have to look, and this is his title, when you have to look at what is the most reasonable to happen, you have to face it. You cannot run from it. In starting this simulation, I had to take a number of factors involved. Population of city rights up to, up to states, percentage of red versus blue from local to state, the voting tabulations of 2016 were an invaluable resource, which areas have higher crime rates versus those who do not, which areas have stricter gun laws versus areas that do not? 
which areas have the most drug trafficking crime, which areas have the most to the least educated people, sites that highlight school districts for people moving there were an invaluable resources, availability of police force, military dispositions of both active duty and guard reserve forces, where what bases have in terms of equipment and their locations, this plays into the political climate of the area as well. The political groups involved with their goals, numerical strengths, organization strengths, and weaknesses. And finally, but not all, worldwide situations from adjacent borders to where the American presence is military and political. Yes, this took time, lots of time. But a few months ago, when I was watching Ken Burns' The Civil War, a number of elements struck me as being prevalent here today in both quote and action. Hence, this thought to see how it would potentially play out today. The short version, it'll be a hell of a mess. It'll make World War II look like a barn dance. The first actions, just like in the case of South Carolina, will be in California. In any search to find the people who want war the most, look for the place with the most nuts who would commit it and view it as a second American revolution, albeit a Marxist one. Funny how the southern slave owners wanted domination over others just like these modern slave owners do and it's an idea whose time needs to end, especially here. Just like in 1860, these folks love to silence, intimidate, assault, and if need be, murder to assert control over others. Representatives in Congress were physically attacked then and have been now. They blamed the election of the president for it, like they did Lincoln. But just as Lincoln made it clear so long as the Union stayed together, he would keep slavery, as he told Horace Greeley, if not be. Here it's almost the same thing. Here Trump wants economic freedom for all, so that all boats rise with a high tide, versus those who would use taxation and Marxist central, centralized control to both indoctrinate and keep a firm grip on people. Unless met with force, such an evil will not stop. Evil never does until good finally has to use the same methods or war to stop evil. In my simulations of the forces involved in a second American civil war, most of the liberal cities would be blockaded and cut off from supply, turning them into little Beirut all over with factions fighting for what is left until there is nothing left. Most of the military would side with the president and most of the deep state would go into hiding rather quickly. The left will let loose their refugees and their minions to do mischief, but it won't last as long as regular civilians formed into militias and would reduce the impact of those rogue groups. Millennials from both red and blue would be fighting each other and the 17 million vets would be quickly training average citizens who realize that their life is on the line into combat trained members. Of course, Mexico and the UN will try to take advantage of the situation, but the pent-up anger at both by average Americans will eventually be their undoing. Families will have great rifts, just as the first one, but unlike those that hold fast to the traditional values, the liberal ones will be, for the most part, have no stomach for a fight. But I do expect some massacres of them as the fields of battle progress, just as they would commit cowardly ones of our own people when the Waffen-SS murdered unarmed prisoners during the Battle of the Bulge over... Over the, the Battle of the Bulge, our own troops made sure that those SS they captured did not live very long. I see the same thing happening here. 
I'll write more as it develops, but you can bet the death toll will be in the millions. When it was suggested that it was dumb to look into the effects of an internal Second World War, Second Civil, sorry, Second Civil War, I felt the need to point out something that makes some people uncomfortable, but as young Ben Shapiro has said, facts don't care about your feelings. While it may be dumb, it's still a serious possibility being pushed by both the left and the media. It's time they know what they are asking for in a whole. They only see their own myoptic hate, nothing more like southern fire eaters and northern radical abolitionists did in 1860. The first thing is that everyone must accept that we are not immune from history repeating itself and take it from there, which I have done. My simulation was based upon populations, military, and National Guard allocations who has who has how many and how, of what trade and traffic routes and places where particular groups operate. The military does the same simulation of which the software is out there, by the way, to determine whether one has weaknesses and one has strength and overall outcomes that have a high probability of happening. You know, in the first part of the Civil War, they forced retired General Sherman uh, for they forced retired General Sherman for insanity when he said it was going to be a long, drawn-out, costly war of attrition taking years. Events proved him right, and the once optimistic Federals brought him back. The very same elements then are present now and should not be ignored for their impact. Did I take into account from my simulations that a third actor would take advantage of the situation of a second civil war? Yes. As it stood, with America effectively paralyzed and balkanized, China would move against Taiwan, North Korea would move against South Korea, and depending upon how long it lasts, both would move against Japan. Over here, we would see a mass migration from Mexico stretching from El Paso to San Diego and maybe even more. The Antifa group would wipe were wiped out by the La Raza groups with support from the Mexican cartels and military. It later ended up in serious house-to-house fighting like Aleppo, Aleppo in Syria. Upon the Canadian border, it would be packed with liberal socialistic refugees ejected from their enclaves if they survived the gang warfare and groups that demanded compensation for past ills and did not exist and fairly well starved as their inner city food supplies had been shut down for a time, resulting the Canadian government closing its borders to stop the flood, but unable to do so. Cuba would have its eye on Florida, but the conservative alliance and the anti-Castro forces would keep them from making any successful landing, but they would take Puerto Rico. Judson Phillips had some insights, like most people who delve into history, as to where things stand. Since the election of 2016, the left has gone crazy. Their version of the Tea Party is called Resistance, and the spearhead of that is loosely formed terrorist group called Antifa. Antifa is short for anti-fascist. The irony of their name is not lost on those who actually know history, as their tactics are straight from the fascist playbook. In the past few months, these groups have repeatedly disrupted peaceful pro-Trump rallies. They have called for and used violence against people who support the president or disagree with them and even against members of the media who will report things Antifa doesn't want reported. Just a few days ago, a woman associated with Antifa attacked a police horse using a flagpole with nails extending from it. At the same incident in Pennsylvania, another Antifa terrorist had sharpened bamboo poles and baseball bats. Conservatives and those pierced 
I'm sorry, conservatives and those perceived to be conservatives have been attacked. The weapons have included glitter-filled glue, urine bombs, chains, bicycle locks, and baseball bats. As their violence becomes more intense, it is now only a question of when, not if, someone will be killed. Violence is not limited to pro-Trump rallies. The same Antifa group has made college campuses virtually no-go zones for conservatives. Noted conservatives such as Ann Coulter, Milo Yiannopoulos, and Ben Shapiro cannot go onto many college campuses to speak without having the events disrupted to the point where they cannot go on. If this violence continues, the choices are not good. The left-wing academic establishment has quickly surrendered to these groups. They are allowed to riot on campus and even give relief from homework and exams so they can riot. Is there a solution short of a real violent civil war in America? California and Hawaii have recently announced that they would sign agreements with other nations so that they could join the Paris Climate Change Accord. Liberal states have this amazing ability to find things in the U.S. Constitution that people haven't been able to find for over 200 years, but they ignore the plain language of the document that organizes the United States of America. At this point, is there any way that America can hold together as a single united country? When states are wanting to sign their own treaties with other nations, and when one half of the political spectrum in the nation wants to strip the other half of its rights and engage in violence against them, survival seems improbable. After Donald Trump was elected as president, the hashtag CalExit started trending on social media. Members of the radical left pushed the idea of California leaving the United States. That idea was tried once before with less than great results, but maybe it is time for a peaceful solution that would allow California to leave the Union. There was a time when Americans desperate sorry, there was times when Americans, despite their differences, clearly identified as Americans above all else. That time is now past. It's an ugly truth we must now face and embrace. We have no choice or were as bad as those liberals out there whose world is not based upon reality. Also, let us look at the bigger picture that will emerge as the United States becomes dissolved and and are in conflict with each other. 1. There are always power plays exercised by the lesser nations who have been held in check by the major powers. Once the major powers are fully occupied and then those minor ones will create their own invasion of whatever neighboring territories they can grab and hold. The hard truth is that the left doesn't believe in the founding tenets of this nation. They believe in Marxist tenets and will use any means necessary to replace the Constitution as we know it. The ideologies are irreconcilable. The time has now passed for them to achieve their aims by peaceful means, and they know it. Their anger and hate spurs in-your-face sedition, intimidation, and incitement to violence on a daily basis. Traditional America will never knuckle under to leftist tactics. And so the battle is joined. It's been a long time in making, and from the early going, it looks like it's going to be one hell of a fight. As far as Europe, our withdrawal of forces allowed the migrant invasion to turn into a full-fledged jihad. A badly run NATO would be hard-pressed to be dropping bombs on itself. Turkey would move against Greece, and most of Central Europe went Muslim via North Africa. Elements, Christian and any other who survived the onslaught, forced out moved east to Poland and Hungary, where they were aligned with the Russians for defense. Ukraine will become part of Russia yet again as the U.S.-supported government loses that support. With 
with our not being focused on the Middle East, Russia will take advantage of the power vacuum and take by force the U- Ukraine, solidify Syria by rather ruthless scorched earth policies, and Israel would align itself with Russia to keep the radical groups at bay. Let's face it, both hate the Muslims. And Saudi Arabia and Iran would go at each other, potentially with nuclear weapons. With both superpowers preoccupied with their own issues, it had a 77.9% chance of happening. What about heavily heavy military equipment? I took that into account. How much would be taken by the liberals and liberal military types, and it would be damn little. Anything left would be sabotaged or destroyed. Infrastructures destroyed by retreating or advancing forces would have a hard time being repaired. But Mike Rowe gives us a hint as to who would have the upper hand. The people who would repair the infrastructure to keep us in power and gas would be the ones who have trades and don't burn American flags. With power outages all over, the liberals would have a hard time pumping gas, wouldn't they? I take everyone's own agenda into account and the human nature to take advantage of a situation to get some benefit for themselves. That's why the variable takes hours to calculate, but so long as there might be truth to it, it must be reckoned with. The urban areas that depend on rural areas would be the first to succumb. The chaos in densely populated areas will witness massive carnage and destruction. Food will be in short supply very quickly. There were there were, would also be extreme denials in many folks, just as the speed in which the improbable become the concrete existence in 1861. It'll happen just as fast, but given how many conservatives realize the danger, the denial would be more on the liberal side, which denies reality in its total existence. In short, without the internet, Snapchat, or Google, they will not meld into a coherent force very quickly. But how many can actively mobilize as a force majeure we will have no communications, no network, as they would be under attack. People would look to police forces are in for a rude awakening. By that time, most police would be looking out for themselves in such a crisis as many of us do do note that our forefathers did not have even the slightest of our organization. We would improvise, adapt, and overcome, as most of the ex-military would be running the show. 17 million vets is a hard number to ignore if the VA wasn't so hell-bent on killing all of them. Most of the conservative-thinking people would rally in various places, establish security, and martial law rather quickly, and no doubt eliminate the criminal element that has been enabled for many years. The other side would recruit them. The eastern seaboard will see the heaviest action right off the bat. With enclaves from Virginia on up, the southern states, fed up with the north, shall indeed rise yet again. New York is really very red outside of New York City, but that can be blockaded until it is starved into submission rather easily. Maryland and Delaware will see mass riots and ethnic cleansing on a large scale until forces roll in and restore order, no doubt with martial law and many a quick summary execution of riot leaders. The western seaboard will be a long haul as most of it does have ports for resupply and food production. With Oregon and Washington State the most vulnerable, a direct move through Washington to make a flanking attack on California will ensure and push down until it hits the northern part of California, where it is more conservative than liberal. Watch as the state gets split into two, like West Virginia was during the Civil War. 
The Southwest will take the longest to reclaim. That's just based upon numbers and the fact that we are not willing to use nukes on our own soil in that regard. Swift armor tactics will help in some cases, like the breakout in Operation Cobra, but we don't have really too many patents out there. Oh, and troubles come from any ethnic groups that want to establish dominance over others will be dispatched over a year, over one year period of time. They may cause as much as 3 to 1 casualty rates at first, but in the end, camps will be used to contain them and then deport them. The time elapsed for this whole thing, 5 years, 3 to 9 months. However, in the end, we would be back to where George Washington wanted us to be in the first place, out of foreign affairs, tending home and binding the wounds, no doubt attending to the Constitution, those things that people have wanted. No income tax, term limits, strengthening of the Second Amendment, and no doubt those items which enable the left to buy votes in the first place. Of course, many will refuse to sign an oath to pledge loyalty to the United States, unlike their Confederate ancestors, and will no doubt have to be deported, if not jailed, for expressing violent intent. But, as with all things, truth via facts and freedom will eventually reign. It's a hallmark of history. Todd adds, as you consider the above analysis, what would it mean for you? Are you stuck in one of these liberal, quote-unquote, liberal cities? If you make it out, could you garden and raise your own food? Can you defend yourself? Do you have the skills you might need? Are you prepared? All right, so you can see why that was a very interesting uh, article and why so many people have taken interest in it. Uh, the analysis, you'd love to be able to see the analysis, the actual analysis, right, and see what it looked like. Uh, maybe he'll do that. I'm sure there's probably more to come uh, as, um, as, he's, as he's done this and is, it was so popular. So uh, go check that out if you want to look at it a little bit more carefully and maybe reread it. Uh, that's going to be at Ed That Matters. And then, of course, I have the link that you can go to uh, Drew's uh, Facebook page and you can go like it and get information, uh, you know, see what he's posting on a regular basis there. All right, so our next article comes to us from the prepperjournal.com and the article is entitled Four Absolutely Necessary Things Every Prepper Must Realize. Now, I have been doing this for over 10 years and have been actively involved in a small community of like-minded people for almost as much time. And I have seen plenty of folk come and go, especially since the rise of the show Doomsday Preppers. I, more so than a lot of people involved in this, have dealt with a lot of other preppers face-to-face, and I want to talk about the patterns that I have seen from over the years. Before anything else, I will quickly mention one thing that has been repeated a lot but is always worth mentioning. Physical fitness. I have met people who hold the belief that it doesn't matter if they cannot handle a flight of stairs as the weight will come off when it needs to and my body will adapt. You can be the best prepared and equipped person on earth, but the harsh reality is that day zero will involve a lot of hard work, even if you intend to hunker down. You need to take into consideration preparing your AO and getting there. The reality is that no matter the event, Prepping without the willingness to make some sacrifices to fitness is hoarding under a different name. Now, with that over, skills, not stuff. All too frequent is the mentality that having lots of things is going to make an SHTF scenario easier. 
While yes, there is a baseline amount of prepping supplies that will improve your chances and are basically necessities, a good knife, a map, a plan, and a gun depending on how you feel about the situation, that isn't everything. What I am talking about is the huge tendency to believe that having an object is the same as being able to use said object proficiently. Using a knife as an example, I believe that you will be hard-pressed to find a single prepper that doesn't carry a knife and have a good fixed blade somewhere. However, I would say over 80% of preppers do not have knife skills. What I mean by this is, do you know how to whittle, make traps, baton well, the use for various knife blades and shapes, and how to dress a kill for hide and meat? The same can be said of maps. Yes, navigating when you know your initial position is easy, but in the event you get disoriented, can you triangulate your position with landmarks? What if you do not know the area? Can you still find your way around? Chances are that not, no matter how well prepared you are, an SHTF scenario will eventually be similar to living in a completely infrastructure-less environment. Backpacking over a multi-week time period and hunting are ex excellent ways to learn many skills to make your life easier. What are your gear priorities? Prepping. Like engineering is not about having the most of everything, it's about having the right amount of everything. Whether you intend to stay or bug out, it is of course important to have the skills. Can you pack, pack a bag correctly, etc.? However, I see many people approaching with a mindset of hoarding will make things easier. As an example, I spoke to a man whom had 43 different weapons with almost 500 days of non-perishable food. This mindset of buying without realizing that in an SHTF scenario, every item you bring or stock has a cost. For example, with every weapon the man owned, he was paying a price in three different ways. One, obviously, space and weight. The 2.5 kilogram rifle could be swapped for 2.5 kilograms of water purification tablets, ammunition, or tools. People tend to think of prepping items of, it is good to have. Instead, try to think of it in a mindset of, what else could I bring instead? Number two, ultimately guns must be maintained regular, regularly, and more guns will mean more maintenance and man hours spending tending to your weapons. Three, Finally, almost everything that is a tool for you for your own survival is also a tool against your survival. A bigger stash means you are more attractive to, bandit, to bandits. In this situation, the only reason to have that many weapons was to maintain a guard force large enough to protect two to 300 people. If your plan is to conscript, conscript people and form a sizable community for survival, that is fine. But having 40 people armed and only having enough farming tools and equipment to support 10 long-term long is very dangerous. Learn to maintain and make everything. This is, a less applicable, this is less applicable for people preparing for three to four day events like earthquakes and more aimed at people preparing for a complete breakdown of human society for an indefinite period of time. All too often I hear statements like, I have these two really super high quality solar panels so I will be fine. Unfortunately, the reality is even the most expensive and well-made tools money can buy are unlikely to survive 10 years of use. It may not be a nice reality, but the reality is that any tool that you bring that cannot be replicated with basic machining knowledge and tools is temporary. Learn the basics of reshaping scrap metal and wood. Learn to make a furnace with materials that are renewable. Think clay and charcoal for the fire. 
Learn as much passing knowledge on simple items as possible. Learn to make bows, furniture, simple houses, simple clothes, simple bags, and anything along that line. Not only will it be useful in equipping your group, but also for trading. A working and replaceable long-range weapon like a bow will be worth more than luxury cars 15 years after a collapse. And finally, learn how to lead and how humans think. Prepping has a strong theme of different strokes for different folks, but one of the most common themes is everyone is going to be marauders and is going to be after me, and I am going to have to kill so many hapless raiders that that justifies my federal armory of weapons. I have served and I have been in disaster situations, both long and short term, and the reality is there will be raiders for maybe a week tops. After that, people will work together on a small scale, think tribes, because we are naturally altruistic. After maybe a year or two and people are established, raids will begin again. Preppers are almost always very exclusionary. I have met people who think the world will end if you share your beans, but it is almost exactly the opposite. People given tools and directions can and will work and provide for themselves, and the unprepared group who bands together will outlast the lone prepper. Television always portrays survival groups as a bunch of a-holes all fighting for dominance all the time, but really, it is the opposite. Almost always, everyone just agrees they need food or whatever, and no one steps up to the plate to really make decisions. Be that person and you will form a group of 20 to 30 people who will work for you and with you to make everyone's lives better. It is how we are programmed. The final note I leave you with on this topic is that people always form tribes and tribes are always communal. Don't expect that refusing to share what you have will extend your life at all. So uh, there's a couple of comments here, long comments, people uh, responding back to this uh, this uh, article. I think it's a good one. I really like what he said at the end here about the, uh, uh, you know, be leading and the fact that uh, people are communal and, and people will form tribes. I think uh, that's that's where I'm, uh, that's where my idea is, that's where my thought process is. Uh, I never thought that the loan, like, hey, you know, my four, no more, and circle the wagons. I never thought that that was a good idea. But anyway, good article over here at the Prepper Journal. Go check that one out. Uh, you'll want to you'll wanna read that one. There are tons of links. I, there's no way I could have even uh, begun to, to tell you how many links there are. So anytime there's something that's going to another... Um, I mean, there's just links that are they're going all over the place. So you definitely want to come and check this article out. All right, our last article comes to us from The Organic Prepper. And uh, Daisy's written an article. It's called 20 Times I've Been Glad I Had an Emergency Fund. And uh, I think this is very, very relevant for our lives today and something that we all need to consider and definitely something that we all need to implement in our lives. So let's go ahead and, and read this one here. While Jeff Bezos and Amazon are ravenously devouring the entire retail world, things aren't so rosy for the rest of us. Bankrate has released another unsettling survey about the lack of financial security of American families. In this one, they divulged the result that 24% of American families do not have even a single dollar in an emergency fund. Not even a dollar. And here is the scariest part. This number is an improvement. 
This is the lowest level of completely saving less people since Bankrate began doing the survey in 2011. Going through life without an emergency fund is like getting on a tiny little plane without a, any parachute. You hope, you hope that the flight will go smoothly, but you want to be ready if a bird flies suddenly straight into the engine. Instead of yet another article about how and why you should have money put back for a rainy day, you can find that kind of article here if you need to get the info on how and why. I wanted to share some real-life examples of times that my own emergency fund saved my bacon. 20 times an emergency fund made all the difference for my family. I'd also like to preface this list with the fact that I am not rolling in money. I've been a single mom for 14 years, raising two daughters. For a while, I received a small amount of child support, but that abruptly disappeared seven years ago when my children's father suddenly passed away. Despite many financial ups and downs, one thing remained constant. I paid my savings first so that I could handle a rainy day. I treated it like a bill so that I would never be truly broke, if I could help it at all. Some of the emergencies of my life won't ever happen to you, but in their place there will be other emergencies. On the other hand, many of these will probably be relatable because they are just the stuff of life. Also, it's important to note that it wasn't just cold hard cash that saw us through these tough times. The emergency fund was aided and abetted by a stockpile of supplies that I didn't have to purchase during difficult periods as well as a mindset that allowed me to embrace living very frugally. These two things are just as important as cash in the safe or bank or mattress wherever you happen to keep it. When I got divorced, instead of spending every dime while I was married, I had always put a little money back. In my mind, it was a vacation fund. I wanted to take my kids to Disney World, but the trip had never emerged. When things became ir irreconcilable, I wasn't trapped because I had enough money to find a small yet suitable place to live in a neighborhood near my children's father so that we could continue to each spend time with them and co-parent despite our own issues. When I was working a minimum wage job, after being a stay-at-home mom who ran a home daycare, I suddenly found myself in a teeny little apartment with no resume. The only job I was able to find for the first while was a minimum wage one. After paying for child care and rent, there was barely enough money to put food on the table. Still, I clung to the remainder of my emergency fund, doling it out carefully to supplement our small grocery shopping trips and pay for those things that, come, that came up at school for the kids. When I got an opportunity for a better job, you, can ex you, can exactly use, you can't exactly use the same grungy wardrobe that you did in a job planting seedlings in a nursery when you go to work in a sales position selling high-end merchandise. Even though I bought nearly all of my work wardrobe secondhand, it still cost money that wouldn't have been available on a minimum wage budget. When my daughter broke her wrist... Even in Canada, where most of the medical care is covered, something like this costs money that can strain an already tight budget. There was the trip to a pediatric orthopedist, outrageously expensive parking at the hospital, and a little snack after what was supposed to be two hours turned into eight hours of fare, and our home, packed food, had long since been consumed. When my car broke down when we were out of town... Once when I had taken my kids to a museum about three hours from our home, an outing I had budgeted for, our car broke down rather catastrophically. The brake lines had rusted through due to the road salt and harsh Canadian winters. There was absolutely no alternative but to get it repaired immediately since you can't go if you can't stop. 
brake lines are a pretty extensive repair with the potential to snowball far beyond the original quote. As well, we were strained there overnight while the shop completed the work. This meant we also needed a motel room and some food. When my daughter had scarlet fever. When my oldest daughter was 11 years old, she contracted scarlet fever, which sounds archaic and horrible, but is actually just strep throat with a rash. However, she was very sick, and I ended up having to take two weeks off work to care for her. Two weeks off work equals two weeks without pay, which equals an entire missed paycheck. When my heater died on Christmas Eve day, you know how things always happen at the worst possible time. Well, one memorable year back in Canada, my furnace suddenly stopped working the day before Christmas. I couldn't get anyone out there immediately, so we bundled up and celebrated Christmas in one room in our parkas. I had to pay a premium rate to get a person there on the day after Christmas. Boxing Day in Canada is still considered a holiday, but on the third day in the middle of of a Canadian winter, you'll pay just about anything to get some glorious heat. This was before I was into prepping in any way other than an emergency stockpile. In fact, this was what inspired me to begin thinking about things like secondary heat sources and more general preparedness. When my dad got sick. My dad became terminally ill when I was still living in Canada. I took off work and drove back and forth to Memphis several times to help my mom and soak up every moment I could with him. At this point, I was in a better position financially and had several months of expenses put back. When I got laid off, the automotive industry provides you with one of those feast or famine kinds of jobs. When the money is good, it's astonishingly good, but when there is a downturn, heaven help you if you had spent all of your high commission month's pay. I got laid off more than once throughout that career, but between my stockpile, unemployment insurance, and my savings, it was hardly a blip on the radar. When you know or at least suspect it could happen, you can calculate your income over the course of a year and see if it's worth sticking with that job. For me, it was. For some of my co-workers who did not have these things to rely on, the instability was devastating. When my father passed away. After numerous trips to help out my mom during dad's illnesses, a broken sewer pipe destroyed my basement back home. I had just been temporarily laid off again. Initially, all was well because the insurance company took care of everything. At the same time, my premium skyrocketed. At that time in Canada, there was no legal cap on how much they could raise your rates all at once, and they based the rates on your financial situation. They decided that since I was unemployed, even though I had never missed a payment, that I was high risk and my premiums were raised to a point that they were higher than my mortgage. I entered one of the worst financial points in my life. I lost a lot of material things, including my house and my car. I sold off everything I could to support my family, and we made some drastic lifestyle changes. When I got downsized permanently, something a lot of folks have seen over the past decade is the business that is that businesses are hiring younger, less experienced people who don't demand a high salary and commission point. When I was offered a buyout, I knew the handwriting was on the wall. I took the money and added it to my emergency fund and decided that it was time to get into a new line of work. I was only 40 but had hit the peak of what other people were willing to pay me as the automotive industry continued to careen downhill, so too would my career. My emergency fund allowed me to take a year off of working outside the home to start a writing career as long as I moved someplace dirt cheap and lived frugally for that year. 
when my oldest daughter went to college, regardless of my own financial situation, I was adamant that my kids would start life without the college debt that shackles most young people today. Through my daughter's hard work in earning a scholarship, her tuition was paid. Her summer job paid for her spending money. I paid for her living expenses and a few dips into the fund paid for her books. When I moved to the U.S. to take a promotion, the company I did some freelance writing for offered me a raise in promotion if I was willing to relocate. They weren't offering moving expenses, but the opportunity was too good to pass up. Also, I was thrilled since I wanted to leave Canada and come back home for a while. Thankfully, my emergency fund allowed me to the freedom to make the 3,000-mile journey and relocate without too much financial stress when I branched out and became completely self-employed. Once my book started bringing in a regular income, I was able to leave my job and work strictly for myself. The cushion provided by my emergency fund made the leap a lot less scary. When the septic system of our rental home went kablooey, imagine the scene. We got home after being out for the day and our home smelled like a porta potty at a music festival on the equator. In revulsion, I walked through the house to the bathroom where a few inches of raw sewage were on the floor after overflowing my toilet and bathtub. We had to grab a hotel room paid for by the landlord, drive back and forth to care for our livestock not paid for by the landlord, and eat out almost not paid for by the landlord. When we discovered it could take more than a month to get the matter resolved, we had to move out ASAP. While we weren't charged rent and we got back our deposit, moving is still expensive and we had to get our things out of the house before they were ruined by the sewage issue. When my youngest daughter required emergency dental surgery. We don't have dental insurance, but dental emergencies don't care about that. Recently, my daughter's orthodontist spotted an issue with her wisdom teeth that signaled they needed to be extracted immediately. Since no one takes payments anymore, I was fortunate that I was able to pay the $3,000 bill. Her grandparents also kindly contributed some towards the surgery since we had just relocated for her to start vocational college. When my dog had a veterinarian emergency. Recently, my dog managed to rip out his stitches after being neutered. Despite his gigantic cone of shame and a move that was as smart as it was dumb, he pushed the cone against a chair and managed to maneuver it down enough that he could reach his boy parts. We had to rush him to an emergency vet clinic to stop the bleeding, get new stitches, and treat the developing infection. When my windshield had to be replaced. A few months ago, I got a stone chip in my windshield repaired and all was well. Unfortunately, due to a super hot day, the stars aligning or some kind of missile-guided second stone hitting the exact same place, the chip turned into a crack that spread all the way across my windshield in a day. The replacement was less than my insurance deductible, but still quite a chunk of change. When kid number two started secondary education, having some extra money on hand means I can buy her a $500 supply kit for vocational school without any kind of panic. I can also give her a debt-free start in life, just like I did for her sister. When life just happens. When you look at all of this stuff together, it probably sounds like I have the worst luck on the planet. Not really. Furnaces stop working in the middle of winter. Cars break down when you are far from home. Jobs are lost. Kids get hurt. People die. These aren't outrageous things that only happen to the rare individual. I'll bet nearly everyone reading this can relate to some or all of these ordinary mishaps 
For some folks, none of these things would cause financial stress. Maybe they have an excellent secure job and a year's worth of savings in the bank. Maybe they inherited a lot of money, just sitting there like the most luxurious velvet cushion. Maybe they are living a charmed life in which bad things simply never occur. But most of us aren't living that life. While perhaps we aren't living paycheck to paycheck, we still have to be careful with our money. When something happens that is far outside our normal budget, it's an emergency. How major or, or minor that emergency is for you depends on how well you have prepared yourself financially. Here's how to build yourself some financial security regardless of your income. These steps can help to create a more financially secure life. Each step has a link to more information. Live beneath your means, not just within them. Reduce your fixed expenses wherever possible. Get out of debt as fast as you can. The snowball method is a proven method that anyone can use. Build an emergency fund. Create an emergency food pantry. Make frugality a joyous way of living. Don't be afraid to make radical lifestyle changes. Work on your self-reliance skills and spend some time acquiring extra money to put towards your personal financial plan. So what about you? Have you ever had a situation during which your emergency fund helped you out? Share your story in the comments below. So, uh, great article by Daisy. And, you know, it's good to just to be able to... Uh, to see where other other people are coming from, you know, see other people that have experienced things, uh, you know, you you never you never realize how you know taking a trip to a museum, <clears throat> how that's going to wind up costing you you know tons of money, your emergency surgery, your dental surgery for your for your child, or or you know a veterinarian, uh, you know having to go to the an emergency vet, uh, furnace breaking down, you know I applaud. Uh, Daisy for not, you know, uh, letting her kids strap strap themselves down with <coughs> with so much uh, college debt. I'm doing the very same thing. I mean, the college loan bubble is is crazy. It's one thing to, um, you know, to go to college and you you know, there, there, if if that's something a way that you want to go, but definitely you don't want to come out with fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars worth of debt. And how many people are doing that, right? Uh, being able to have options when you when you have an emergency fund and you have uh, you know you you can rely on that you have options to not be and you have no debt let me say that as well you have options to be able to like she said take that start working on her writing career and that that year that she was able to take off paid off so you think about what you know if you didn't have debt what you were able to do uh, you know how you would be able to live. So, like I said, uh, I said earlier, I think these are, you know, three really great articles uh, you should go check. Daisy has links all throughout her article as well, and especially at the end there where you want to check that out. Uh, definitely want to go and, and hang out over there. So, um, all right, so we've started a new week, a new week of podcast. I'm in, uh, like I said, I really appreciate everyone who comes out and supports the website or the podcast, I'm sorry. Uh, hey, if you get a chance, come by the website and uh, drop me a comment. Uh, definitely you know, hit me up on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And I'd uh, love for you to come in and uh, be a part of the Facebook group. That's always uh, that's always open. People are, are, are uh, coming and asking to join that every single day. So I'm enjoying time over there. So with that, choose to live a more self-reliant life. Choose not to be so dependent on the government grid or the grind. Until tomorrow, stay prepped and aware. Peace.